Thanks, Anna, for playing, and Andy, thanks for the glimpse into your new family photo album. That was very special. Good to see that. I'd like to begin our time with prayer, if we could, please. Father, as we look at, at your word today, Lord, and the truth of your word, we're just thankful that your word can have an impact on our life, and we would ask for that to occur today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read somewhere this week that the Bible is the only book ever written and the only book that ever will be written with a pulse. Okay, I was thinking God's word with a pulse. And as I take the pulse of God's word, I can't help but think of Hebrews 4.12. This book's alive. It's active. It penetrates our thoughts. It penetrates our soul, our spirit. And it judges the attitudes of our heart. Again, the Bible, the only book with a pulse. And today, this book and our study of Titus takes us to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It's only two verses. Uh, Patty just informed me that it was 37 words in her version. So and that's okay. It's going to take about 37 minutes. So I think we're okay. Um, but basically, in Titus 2, 9, and 10, what I think, based on my study, the key thought, the primary statement, the take-it-home-with-you sentence, if you will, is that we need to do our work as unto the Lord so that we can tell others about Jesus. I think everything that is said today will be wrapped around that statement. Do your work as unto the Lord so that we can tell others about Jesus. And that truth is wrapped up again in Titus 2, 9, and 10. Because it's only two verses, I'd like to read it in four different versions, um, beginning with the NIV. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. New American Standard Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The New English Translation Slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything, to do what is wanted and not talk back, not pilfering, but showing all good faith in order to bring credit to the teaching of God our Savior in everything. And finally, the New Living Translation. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. So in Titus 2, 9 and 10, we have Paul providing Titus with five lessons that need to be shared with the slaves at the church in Crete. I find it noteworthy that Paul coaches Titus in chapter 2 to address the young men and the young women. We've talked about that in previous weeks, the older men and the older women. And then he singles out slaves 
I couldn't help but think, I mean, won't the slave be included in one of those previous groups? But by way of background, and we do need to understand the Roman culture history at this point, because in, in those times, people just considered slavery to be a fact of life. Slaves were property. And as sad and as simple as that, that was the way it was. And there were lots of slaves. Between one-third and one-half of the population at this time fit the description of a slave. Unfortunately, in Roman culture, slave owners had the legal right to abuse and even kill slaves for just minor infractions. Slaves were property. That's just the way it was. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter's response to slavery was to instruct the masters, the Christian masters, to treat their slaves well. And as we have read this morning, for Christian slaves to obey and to be subject to their masters. So maybe right about now you're thinking, uh, Titus 2, 9 and 10, it's all about slaves, doesn't have anything to do with me, why am I here, what's going on, okay? But that's simply not the case. And by the way, I'm really glad you're here. Um, again, I hope you were here for the Lord's Supper. It's very special sharing that time. But in the New Testament, again, Paul and Peter's response to slavery was to urge the masters to be nice, be good to the Christian slaves, for the Christian slaves to be subject and to obey their masters. But it might not think, you might not be thinking so well that, you know, as a, it's not a slave stuff. I'm not a slave. Why am I here and all that stuff? But let's transition from slaves and masters to Christian employee and Christian employer. Can we make that transition here? Can we learn something from the Paul Titus lessons to the slaves? Do we have something to learn about obeying our employers, doing our best to please them, not talking back and not stealing, but showing ourselves to be totally trustworthy and good as their employee? So let's not think that this passage is just about slaves and has nothing to do with us. If Christian slaves going about their long hours of daily work have the opportunity to make the doctrine of God attractive, then maybe we should see what we also can learn from Paul's instructions to Titus and fast forward to the slaves. Because that's what Paul is doing here. He's kind of coaching Titus to kind of provide a lesson plan so he can reach um, and teach the slaves there. But if some overworked slaves, as I said, needed to to obey the directives given in Titus 2, 9, and 10, shouldn't those of us who are involved in the world of work, shouldn't we at least see how these verses might apply to us as well? So to help, let's ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards work? And more importantly, what does the Bible say about work? I'd like to, if I could, invite you to our Sunday school class, okay, our Last two sessions of our junior high, high school, Sunday school class. There with currently 8th to 12th graders, we spent some time in Genesis and the Psalms getting a biblical view of work. In Genesis 131, we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This verse, along with Genesis 2-2, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Those verses establish the fact that God worked and that God looked at his work and was pleased with what he had done. 
Perhaps you've never thought of God in just that way, as a worker. But that's how he first appears in Scripture, as the Creator. And in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, I had kind of some fun with this one. I I was thinking of the many occupational hats that God wore as he created. Think about it. He was a master designer. He was a civil engineer. He was a real estate developer. He was a project manager. He was an artist. Um, I thought he would have been the ultimate wildlife manager as well, but I don't think the life was too wild back then. But maybe a zoologist would fit there. Definitely a horticulturalist. You can see where I'm going. I'm sure you can think of others, how God fits the ultimate worker, if you will. And what we have before us, of course, is creation. So when I think of creation, okay, God's work in creation, He created something that, to use the words of Scripture, something that was very good. Genesis 1.31. I'm wondering, how good is that very good? Let me share a few sentences from a devotional. It was written by James Merritt. God didn't have to paint such magnificent sunsets. It wasn't necessary to have so many different kinds of flowers, birds, and butterflies. Who said that sea turtles had to be created with the innate ability to return thousands of miles to the same beach where they were born to lay their eggs? Why such a splendid creation? I mean, birds migrate, bears hibernate, trees shed their leaves, and plants make food and provide oxygen for us to breathe. The moon, the tides, the seasons, and the sun, they all work together in inexplicable ways. And right now, as we sit here, We're living on a giant magnetic fireball flying through space. It's rotating and turning and spinning at just the right degree and speed to sustain life. Reading that devotional, it's evident that this is a creation that is very good. It's so very good enough that it actually glorifies God. Psalms 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Isaiah 40:26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. And in Psalm 8, in Psalm 8 we read, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. In Genesis 2.15, God showed man who he made in his image. He showed man that he cared by placing him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. God is a God who works, and he's right and good in everything that he does. And since we know that Genesis 2 came before Genesis 3, we can see that God set man in the garden to work before sin entered the world. Work was intended to be good, and it should not be looked upon as something evil and something to be avoided. Psalm 128.2 You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. This verse in Psalms tells us that there's a sense of well-being that is associated with work. 
It's what God made us to do. In our Sunday school class, one of the students described a pretty lengthy and detailed school project that just made them feel really good when it was done, when it was completed. Just as God was pleased with his work in creation, we who are made in his image are intended by God to find a certain amount of satisfaction and enjoyment in working. Work really was not meant to be a curse. It really was intended to fulfill a purpose. Still, in our Sunday school class, you might find this a little strange, but we also talked about greyhounds. What's up with that? Well, what are greyhounds known for? They're known for their speed. Some people race greyhounds, and there are some well-meaning people who feel sorry for these greyhounds, these racing dogs. So they, they buy them when, when they're retired, and what they do is they try to give them a nice life. Um, you know, they take good care of them. Kind of a life of ease and a life of rest. But when this happens, the greyhounds actually can become quite frustrated and, and even somewhat vicious. So why would they behave this way? Because everything in them is wired to run. And they're being deprived of that opportunity. And just like the greyhound is wired to run, we've been wired by God to work, whether at home in helping our family, or in the workforce in the community, or at school. And if we don't work, we can become frustrated and at the least temperamental, and in some cases, even volatile. It's just the way that God made us. So, having shared a very brief background of Roman culture, slavery, and some thoughts on the value of work, let's now look closer at our scripture passage. God inspired Paul to write Titus 2, 9, and 10, so that Titus could teach the slaves at the church in Crete five ways to glorify God in whatever work situation in which they found themselves. And while I know the parallel between being a slave and being a modern-day employee isn't exact, I do think that every Christian employee needs to learn these same lessons. The first directive from Paul to Titus for the slaves is to teach them to be subject to their own masters in everything. Understanding the Roman culture that was shared, this may seem like an unnecessary comment. I mean, of course slaves are supposed to be subject to their masters. After all, in one sense, they really had no choice. They're their property, the property of their masters, and they had no other option but to be subject to them. But please note that their need to be subject to their masters was not because they were considered inferior as people in relation to their masters. This was just the way things were done. Slaves were subject to masters, and in Titus 3.1, the same expression is used where it says, we are all to be subject to those who are in authority. This is just the order of things. So this relationship between slave and master and us and a person in authority is not on the basis of one person being inherently better than the other. At work, when we do go into the office, I can readily see that my supervisor and her supervisor, well, they each have offices with doors and even a window, while myself and my coworkers, well, we have an open cubicle that we share with five other people. Now, this office arrangement doesn't make us inferior to our bosses um, as people. Now, it might appear that way to the casual observer, but the casual observer isn't aware of the mutual respect and the team approach that we do have toward one another 
as we help the people that we serve, no matter the presence or lack of a private office. As a Christian, we know that there is no slave nor free in Christ Jesus. We know that our worth isn't wrapped up in the type of office that we have or don't have. Our value is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ and in him alone. And it is his or her position in Christ that enables the Christian slave to apply this teaching that starts with verse 9, telling the slave to be subject to his master. In the New Living Translation, verse 9 says that slaves need to obey their masters. I have to acknowledge I'm always a little bit guarded when it comes to the New Living Translation. I want to be certain of the translation. But in checking out the word for being subject that's used in that version, it can indeed be translated as obey. Now, I think we all know that it's possible to obey on the outside, but not so much on the inside. And if we go back to the word subject, it's very possible to appear to be subject to one on authority on the outside, but inwardly to have a totally different attitude. You know, I'll do it because I have to, but not because I really want to. But what's commanded in our passage is a continual placing of ourself under the authority of those over us in both our actions and our attitude. As Paul states in Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Working with reverence for the Lord means that Anything a slave or an employee does, whether it be sweeping, mopping, cleaning bathrooms, whatever, it should be viewed as holy work offered to God. As a story about a restaurant had a sign above the dishwashing area, it said, Divine service being held here. The person who oversaw the dishes understood that everything at work could be worshipped to the Lord. Studying for a test, grading papers, raising children, construction work, IT work, engineering work, a lawyer preparing a case. You fill in the blank with your own work history. It can all be offered as obedient worship to God. As we just read in Colossians, Paul told the slaves to work for their masters with a reverence for the Lord. We should ask ourselves, is my workplace holy ground? a place where God is daily reverenced or honored. Colossians 3 goes on to say in verse 23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Again, if those words apply to slaves, some who are often under cruel, abusive masters, surely they apply to us today. You also may have unreasonable, hard-to-please bosses. And besides, whomever our boss is, we are to work as unto the Lord. With that in mind, let's look at Lesson 2, still in Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Based on this verse, slaves are to be well-pleasing, doing whatever is needed, and doing their best to please their masters. Question, how many of us here would see themselves as a people-pleaser? I'm guilty as charged. I don't like to say no to people. I want to be thought of as a kind person. I don't want to disappoint others. I'm afraid of hurting their feelings, and I'm fearful of what they're going to think of me. But then, 
Proverbs 29.25 comes along. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So just as we are to work as unto the Lord, we are also to trust in the Lord. The first one we should always seek to please is the Lord. And then in the context of our work, based on this verse, we should also seek to please our employer. There's nothing wrong with trying to do a good job in order to get a promotion, but our ultimate objective, our ultimate objective always should be to please God. The importance of pleasing God is given throughout the New Testament. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we see that here we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable or pleasing to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Philippians 4.18 uses the image of a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. And just so we don't start thinking that pleasing the Lord is something that we muster up in our own strength, Hebrews 13.20 and 21 tells us that the God of peace, through Jesus Christ, is the one who equips us in every good thing, To do his will. He is the one working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So our work should be well-pleasing. And it should be done with excellence as an act of worship. This past week, think about this. Who did you try to please? Does your name come up first? Or perhaps... The name of the Lord, which is what we would hope. Do we truly try to please the Lord in everything that we've done this past week? I know for myself, it's much easier to say, Jack was pleased. I was glad we did this. I was glad I did this. But our goal is to please the Lord. Lesson number three. Titus is to teach the slaves not to be argumentative. This means don't talk back. And don't talk against the master or the employee. Don't argue and don't dishonor a boss. This text suggests that Paul, the writer of this letter to Titus, is thinking here, I think, of the stereotype, ill-mannered, rebellious slave. In employee terms, this is more likely the disgruntled worker, the the one you can always count on to be upset no matter what direction the company is going. This is the one who will either openly take issue with any change that is presented or will, at the least, make derogatory, sarcastic comments under their breath regarding upper management. I'm not sure how this would work for a slave, but for a Christian employee, there is a place for providing feedback to your employer. However, there's a big difference between providing feedback when it's asked for and in being argumentative. Sharing feedback in a fact-based, professional way is much more productive than an argument tainted with a dishonoring tone. The issue isn't whether you're right or not, is it? It's whether your attitude is right according to God's word. Are you willing to obey one who is an authority over you? Now, we do need to stop for a second and state that the only biblical justified time not to obey is if authorities call us to disobey God. But even on those rare occasions, you can still honor authority by your respectful attitude. 
Think of David. He constantly honored King Saul, and King Saul was pretty much an ungodly authority. David had a submissive attitude and no ill will toward his unjust king. And then there was Daniel. He gives us another example of how God blessed his submissive, respectful attitude toward his master because he responded in a diplomatic and wise way without violating his own scriptural commands or convictions. I'd like to describe one other example of someone living a Titus 2, 9, 10 work life as he submitted to one and authority over him. I'd kind of like you to kind of go along with me on this one. I'd like to see if you can figure it out. Okay, I'm going to give you eight clues, eight statements. When you think you know who it is, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of raise your finger, put it down, don't wave or anything, just make it as inobtrusive as possible. But just let me know that you figured it out. Just think it would be kind of fun, and besides it's helpful um, for me just to see your, see your faces and see you moving, see you active. But it really is about what, what you think to be true at this point. So the first clue, clue number one, his father loved him dearly. Hmm. Ah, thank you. All right. Uh, he was a shepherd of his father's sheep. Two. Okay, good. All right. Others plotted to harm him. Oh, okay. And he was tempted. Got that one? Okay. Um, did I say he was a shepherd of his father's sheep? Okay, just testing. Still got that one. All right. Um, others plotted to harm him. Got that one right. He was tempted. Okay. He was sold for the price of a slave. Ah, more hangs. Good. All right. He was 30 years old when he began to publicly be recognized. He was 30 years old. Okay. He forgave those who wronged him. Okay. And finally, what people did to harm him, God turned for good. Okay. Answer time. Were you thinking of Joseph, son of Jacob? Okay. Or, did Jesus cross your mind? Okay. Correct answer was Joseph, son of Jacob. Okay, in this this case. But again, it's interesting, the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And why I add Joseph to the list of Daniel and David is that they each learned to work with integrity and respect in a non-Christian environment while still honoring God with their attitude and with their work. So let's look now at the fourth lesson in Titus 2. We go to verse 10. It states that slaves are not to steal. Unfortunately, this was a big problem in the days of slavery. And I think you could understand how slaves could wrongly justify stealing as slaves who were not always treated fairly. Now, interestingly enough, slaves were often entrusted with overseeing the master's property and household. It'd be easy for a slave to rationalize and think, you know, I'm, I'm living in poverty and they're living in luxury. They won't miss a little if I use it for myself. I deserve it. Two of the versions that we read in Titus 2, 9, and 10, the New American Standard and the New English Translation, they used the word pilfer, pilfer, P-I-L-F-E-R, pilfer, instead of steal. It's the same Greek word being translated, but in my mind, pilfering just doesn't sound as bad as stealing. I think we would rather say that I I pilfered a paperclip as opposed to I stole the paperclip. 
But either way, as an employee, we try to rationalize our thievery by saying, I've earned it. But how can we rationalize a violation of a commandment? God says, don't do it. Simply put, never take what's not yours. Whether pilfering a paperclip or maybe, I don't even want to say more importantly, because pilfering a paperclip is still stealing, is still a violation of a command. But perhaps we deal with stealing time by not working the hours that you're paid for. Ephesians 4.28 tells us, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now Titus is instructed by Paul to teach this fifth and final lesson to the slaves at Crete. In verse 10, he wants to teach the slaves to show all good faith or be totally trustworthy. Showing all good faith means demonstrating that you're a faithful and a dependable worker. Those over you should know that if they give you something to do, it's going to get done and in a timely manner. They should know that you keep your word. The Christian employee must work with sincerity. The English word for sincere comes from the Latin word sincera, meaning without wax. So how that works in ancient Rome Often in the trade market, people would sell pottery that had cracks in it. But to make a profit, what they would do is they would cover the crack with wax and with paint. But if you held the pottery up to the sun, you could pretty well see if they were sincera, without wax. Christian slaves were, and Christian employees are, to be honest, without wax. Ben and John, both Christians, well, they worked as janitors for the same company. Ben felt his Christian testimony should be reflected in his work. John, well, he knew this as well, but he never seemed to let that interfere with a good conversation. So one day, Ben was busily washing windows, and John was busy too. John was busy talking to Ben. Ben wanted to stop and talk, but knew that he had to stay focused in order to do a good job. He was soon glad that he had resisted the temptation to stop and carry on a conversation with John. Because he saw in the reflection of the glass, well, he saw the supervisor walking up the stairs behind them. Ben continued to clean. John continued to talk and talk and talk. The boss continued to observe and observe and observe. Several minutes later, John turned and he noticed the boss. He greeted them with one of those quick, nervous, uh, hi, and then he scurried off to go to the area that he should have been cleaning. A little while later, John asked Ben, Ben, why didn't you tell me that the boss was standing there? Ben's response, well, not to sound mean or anything, but, you know, Christ was standing there the whole time, and that didn't seem to bother you too much. John got the point. And from that point on, he worked heartily, as unto the Lord. What's the result for a Christian slave who actually follows these five directives given by Paul to Titus? What can be the outcome for a Christian employee who learns and applies these five lessons? That's the what question. But what about the why? Why would and why should a Christian slave and why would and why should a Christian employee live, verses 9 and 10? 
The answer is in verse 10b. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. As the New American Standard puts it, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorn, well that comes from a Greek word, cosmeo, from which we get our word cosmetics. It means to arrange in an orderly manner so as to enhance beauty. Thus, we should live our lives with godly behavior so the world will be attracted to the enhanced beauty of our Savior. On the job, this means we need to think about our behavior and our attitude. How will it make others think about the Savior, the Savior that we claim to follow? Do we realize that even the most menial and trivial labor, if done for the glory of Christ, makes our Savior beautiful? And the gospel is made even more attractive and even believable. Our life needs to be the foundation for any verbal witness. If our life isn't an example of godliness, as Paul spells out here, I hesitate to say this, but please, let's not let others know that we're a Christian. It could truly dishonor the name of Christ. Now, we've heard it said that your work is a reflection of who you are, but for the Christian, that's not entirely true. From a biblical perspective, our work itself and our attitude towards our work is actually a reflection of who we are in Christ. It's all about who we represent. We might disagree with our boss, but all our opinions and complaints don't change the reality that how we work, both performance-wise and attitude-wise, is important to God. If we compare our work life to the work life of a slave, we know that, comparatively speaking, we should have a lot less to grumble about than slaves who... Some had cruel and heartless masters. As a reminder, again, William Barclay said this about slavery in the Roman Empire. The slave was a thing in the eyes of the law. There was no such thing as a code of working conditions, no employee handbook, if you will. When slaves were too old to work, they could be thrown out to die. Slaves did not even have the right to marry, and if they did and children were born, well, the children belonged to the master as well. Just like the lamb of a flock would belong to a shepherd. Once again, all the rights belong to the master and all the duties belong to the slaves. As this letter would be read by Titus to the church in Crete, there would be Christian slaves in the room, many of whom had non-Christian masters. Can you picture a couple of Christian slaves talking in between the Lord's Supper and Family Bible Hour about who had the worst master and both complaining accordingly? Well, they would need to be reminded that though they might not have a good human master, they had a very loving heavenly master. And that they needed to bring value and credit to the teaching of God our Savior in everything that they did. God's word in Titus 2, as we have been taught this month, has something to say about the vital role that all his people have in the eyes of God whom they ultimately serve. Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, is Paul's instructions to Titus regarding the way that various groups within the church should be coached and taught. It includes specific instructions, we know, for older men and women, younger men and women, and for slaves. Titus is encouraging traits such as faithfulness, respectfulness, dignity, and self-control. Living this way, 
not only draws others to Christ, it leaves critics with very little room to attack their faith. In an article in Breakpoint, this is a publication put out by Chuck Colson, uh, attached with his prison ministry, I believe. But there's an article, it's titled, Drawn to the Light, Why Muslims Convert to Christianity. We read in this article that Dr. Dudley Woodbury, he's a professor of Islamic studies, when he learned that throughout the world, Muslims have been turning to Christ, he was curious about why. Why was this happening? Especially in countries where the cost of converting is so high. So to find the answer, he created a detailed questionnaire. Over a 16-year period, some 750 Muslims from 30 different countries filled it out. And the results are stunning. The number one reason Muslim converts listed for their decision to follow Christ was the lifestyle of the Christians who worked and served with them and who lived among them. As we live and identify ourselves as Christians, we can make the gospel message attractive and credible by our godly attitudes and behavior. However, if we're perceived as unloving and hypocritical, we provide unbelievers with good reason to be skeptical about the power of the gospel. Dave Reed calls it giving the enemy ammunition to attack our faith, which, of course, we want to avoid. And Dave Guzik is his last name. He's another Bible teacher. He agrees with Dave Reed. He states, we can show the beauty of the gospel by the way we live. We often think we need better words to adorn the gospel. And better words are fine and and extremely necessary. But what we really need are better lives. Our passage in scripture reminds slaves and us to live and work for the glory of God. God doesn't leave us on our own, though, to attain this level of godly behavior, this better life. We have the gift of God's grace, and we have the precious and powerful gift of God's word. In God's word, we have Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, And delivered himself up for me. By God's grace. He loves us. And he delivered his own son. The son of God. Jesus Christ. So that we might be free from the penalty of sin. And so that we might live a life. That will bring glory to him. God's grace was sufficient for the Christian slaves. And that same grace is sufficient for us as well. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves. In fact. God's amazing grace and the truth of God's word, I think that's the only explanation for how Titus 2, 9 and 10 could be lived out both by slaves and by us. It really, it really, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? I mean, he alone holds the truth that sets the slave and us free to serve him and to serve others for the glory of God. Maybe you listened up until now and you still couldn't find an application. After all, you're you're not a slave and you... You know, you won't describe yourself now as an employee. Well, ponder this, that the lessons that Paul wants Titus to teach the slaves and that we have applied to Christian employees, it's really all about just being considerate of a master or an employer. But learning to be considerate, whether you have an employer or a master, it's really a full-time job for all of us. It includes learning, learning to be considerate of all, 
even those people where it seems extra grace is required. For a slave, that difficult person may have been their master, but for us, it could be anyone who is part of our life or anyone who God brings along our path. Can we determine to be gentle and non-argumentative, even in the most difficult circumstances and even with the most difficult person? All for an opportunity to make the doctrine of God attractive. In the midst of our work, whatever that work might be, whatever work it is that God has given you, whether it be in your home, with your family, in school, as a student, in the community, as a volunteer, or in what we would typically call the world of work, as an employer or as an employee, or in the family of God as a servant, someone whom we may reference as a Christian worker. However God has led us, can we or will we work as unto the Lord so that we can tell others about Jesus? Father, we we thank you for your word and for these verses that show us the importance of living a life that truly reflects your Son, so that we can tell others about him. By your grace and by your strength, we ask that you would enable us to show the beauty of the gospel by the way we live. And Lord, that we would be ready at any time to give a clear and gracious answer to anyone who wants a reason for the hope that we have within us, the hope that is your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.